0: This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, check out our website, www.anchorchurch.com.au. Matt is going to round out this series for us today. We are in Jonah chapter 4. Take a second. Grab your Bible if you have it with you, otherwise you can follow along with the screen behind me. I just want to encourage you as we read this that here at Anchor we believe that the Word of God is powerful, that it is living and active, it is good for us. And um, We believe that God, um, by His Spirit, will move this morning, uh, encouraging us and challenging us as we need it. So let's read uh, Jonah chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals?
1: Thank you, Hannah. Well, as Hannah's mentioned, we are concluding our series in the book of Jonah this week, which is exciting and sad. It's been a great journey through this part of scripture. And today we are in for a treat. I mentioned a few weeks ago when we launched this, that Jonah is a bit like a mirror, uh, the book of Jonah. It's really not about Jonah. It's actually about us. And this is one confronting personal passage. um, And it's always a challenge to hear and preach on these parts of the scriptures. So, We need some help. Why don't we pray together and ask that God would do his thing this morning as his word is proclaimed. Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. And God, we know that your word is like a mirror often to our own lives. It reads us and we don't necessarily read it. And so, Father, we pray this morning that you would convict us by your spirit. Show us the areas in our life where we have withering vines that we have placed above and beyond your purposes and the things that you value. Father, show us where our heart is not aligned with your heart for this world, for this city. And Father, I pray that you would stir in us a heart that is after yours. Help us to see your divine pity, compassion, grace, and mercy for our city and for us. That we pray that you would make us more like Jesus. We ask this in his strong name and all of God's people said, amen. A number of years ago, I went to Big Exoday. Does anyone remember Big (laughs) Exoday? A few of you guys were there. Some of you may even have been like high school kids when you went. To my knowledge, it's actually the largest youth festival that was ever organized, Christian or non-Christian. But this is a large Christian youth festival put on by Youth Alive. And I went because a, a number of kids from my youth group had won a competition to go and play on one of the side stages big X at Big Exoday. And so I turned up to Homebush, the, the big outdoor arena there. I purchased my ticket and I stood in a line with like tens of thousands of teenagers feeling like really old. And, uh, and I noticed down the side of this line that there were a bunch of people holding up signs And as I got closer, I realized they were actually protesters. And they were holding up all of these signs like, repent. And one of the girls was holding up a sign like this. And it says, I hope you can see that, Christian rock is from the pit of hell. Interesting sign, isn't it? Christian rock is from the pit of hell. Now, to be fair, there were some bands making some very interesting noises that day. Uh, Some of my favorite bands, actually, the side side benefit where there's some really cool bands there, all the way along this line, there were tens of thousands of teenagers lined up to get in this festival, and then about 20 or 30 of these, let's just call them Westbro style protesters, right, picketing this festival with all of these messages like this, Christian rock is from the pit of hell. Now, this event, Youth Alive, is put on, um, you know, there there's just tons of volunteers that are helping support this event. And uh, a lot of the volunteers came out to engage in conversation with some of these protesters. So standing around this girl, which you can't really see, standing in a large semicircle in front of her, were probably about 10 rather large islander guys. Not, not like, intimidating, having, like, dialogue, but if I was her, I'd be like... Taking my sign and I'm getting out of here. She had a lot of courage, right? And I thought to myself, this is gonna be a great sermon illustration one day. So I kinda pushed pushed my way through these big burly island boys, took a photo of her, and jumped back into line. And as I was standing in line, I was thinking to myself, like, what is going through her head? Clearly, she's got a lot of conviction right now to stand here in front of these big boys and protest in front of tens of thousands. Like, what what is motivating her? I thought to myself, I wonder if she is motivated by a heart of compassion. Like, is she broken over the tens of thousands of teenagers who will walk through the gates of this festival who desperately need to hear about the message of God's love? Like, is, is that the thing that motivates her to pick it? Or perhaps she, like Jonah, is standing there with a heart of judgment and condemnation, bringing a message of condemnation against a bunch of people who what they probably really need to hear is that God loves you. And without being really privy to what's happening in people's hearts, I don't want to pretend to be the motive police, but it seems to me that these guys were modern-day Jonahs. Preaching a message of judgment with a hard heart and a lack of love for teenagers who desperately need to hear about the grace and mercy of God. The attitude of Jonah is what I want us to look at today. And in case you haven't been here over the last couple of weeks, let me give you a quick recap of the story. A fascinating story. Remember, this story isn't just like normal prophetic literature that we find in the Old Testament. It's, it's a giant caricature. Everything in this story is like blown up. It's all gone big, right? Including the giant fish, the giant boat, the giant great city, Jonah's response. All of it is just, ma- including the repentance that we saw last week, it's all gone mega. It's like a giant bobblehead in a cartoon on the, in the newspaper. It's a caricature and it's humorous and it's meant to make us laugh, right? So we hear about Jonah, son of Amity, and God has pr- placed a prophetic call on his life. He says to Jonah, up, arise and go. I want you to go to the great city of Nineveh because their wickedness has come up against me and I want you to go and preach against it. And instead of going to Nineveh, Jonah does what? He heads in the opposite direction. In fact, he goes as far as he can possibly think of. He boards a ship on a month-long journey to Tarshish, which is the ends of the known world at the time. It's like he is literally sailing out of Europe, out of the, the, um, the heads of Gibraltar, Out into the unknown, as far he is running from God's call, as far and as fast as he can possibly go. In judgment, God sends a giant storm against that ship, and uh, Jonah is asleep in the belly of the ship, and the sailor, uh, the captain, wakes him up and says, Jonah, call upon your God. We are sinking. We're about to go down. What is clear is this is an act of judgment. Jonah, instead of the prophet of God, instead of coming up, praying for these people, confessing his sin, doesn't pray, keeps his mouth shut. The sailors are throwing everything overboard, including the ram. They're throwing it all overboard to try and lighten the ship. And eventually they cast lots and find out that Jonah is the one responsible. And they say, tell us, what, what must we do to end this storm? And he says, throw me overboard. In what looks like an altruistic act of self-sacrifice, but really probably is one of the most heightened moments of Jonah's selfishness in the entire book. They throw him overboard and God sends his mercy and grace in the form of a giant fish that swallows Jonah up. He reaches his rock bottom moment. In the belly of the fish, he has a Quasi-repentance moment, the fish bellies itself, beaches itself on the shores of probably Turkey and vomits Jonah out and he's covered in seaweed and fish guts and he walks a long journey from wherever he landed all the way into Nineveh. He preaches a five-word sermon and revival breaks out in the heart of the greatest city in the world at the time. And so as you turn the pages between Jonah chapter 3 and Jonah chapter 4, you would expect Jonah rejoicing that he has been at the very centre of God's purposes of revival in the world. Jonah chapter 4 verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, "O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Man, (laughs) I don't know about you as you read that. I'm shocked by Jonah's attitude. It's shocking. You know, if Jonah was alive today, he would be on the front cover of Christianity Today website, magazine, right? He would be booked out by every conference. Every single Christian publishing house would want him to write a book that would release a bestseller. Hundreds of thousands of people would buy it. It would be on the Christianity Today top-selling book of AD 600 or whenever the book of Jonah was written. He, He would be booked by every church as a consultant to come and consult on the church, on church growth and reaching the culture. And I mean, literally, He would be headlining every major conference. And then here we see Jonah in this giant, dummy spit, toddler-like sulk. Finally, finally we get the reason. Jonah fesses up as to why he fled all the way to Tarshish. His reason is this, God, I I knew it. I knew it, God. I knew you were going to save these people. That's why. I left. That's why I headed in the opposite direction. Why does Jonah run? Well, it's not that he was unclear on God's call on his life. It's not that he was uncertain about what to say. It's not that he didn't know where to go. And it's not that he was afraid of what the Ninevites might do to him, although there was probably a scary fear in there. No, Jonah was afraid that he would be a successful prophet. He was afraid that God might use him as an agent of mercy and grace. You know, when most of us fear failure in terms of sharing our faith, Jonah fears success. It's backwards. This whole book is upside down. And Jonah begins to blame God. Did you hear that? He he begins to blame God. I told you so. I knew you couldn't be trusted with your grace, God. And just so you know, you can never say, I told you so to God, right? It just doesn't work like that. God doesn't make mistakes. I told you so, God. And you know what's crazy here is that Jonah actually understands, like with crystal clear clarity, he gets the character of God. Do you see what he says to God? I knew it, God that you were a compassionate God. You were gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, relenting from sending punishment. I knew it, God. Jonah has perfect theology. It's probably the only thing that he gets right in the entire book. Actually, maybe the second time. he He obeys God, right? Semi obeys and goes to Nineveh, right? This, this is the one thing that he gets crystal clear right in the entire narrative is he nails the character of God. Jonah has perfect theology. Perfect theology. But he's got a terrible heart, a bad attitude. He knows God's character. He just doesn't want God to act in line with his character. He wants God to be what? Vengeful, judgmental, angry and punishing. That's what, that's what Jonah's hoping for. That's why he goes up on the hill to sit back and watch He's expecting a Sodom and Gomorrah moment on the city of Nineveh. Perfect theology, but a terrible attitude. And it's worth pausing and asking, is that your view of God? That God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, relents from disaster. Is is that your view of God? Or is your view of God more like the view that I had of the deputy principal at my school, Mr. Grimmond, who would walk around with an oversized keychain Like, just there's so many keys on this thing. But literally, I think he was employed to be the bad cop. You know, the principal was the good cop. Deputy was the bad cop. Is that how it works in schools? I'm not not even really sure if there's any deputies. (laughs) I apologize. But he would literally just walk around the school, jangling chains, looking for punishments to hand out. Shirts out, detention. Kicking the ball in the quadrangle, detention. He's like, is that your view of God? He's just like a cosmic deputy principal looking to hand out detentions. Or is your view of God that he is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love? Because you know what verse 2 means. Verse 2 means that it is God's disposition to forgive. That's his heart. That's his desire. That's what he wants to do. He wants to forgive. He wants to show grace. Do you believe that right now, even in the city of Sydney, that God wants to save thousands of people that are far from him? Do you believe that? Do you believe that that's God's heart towards our city, towards our nation? Joni here has perfect theology, but a bad attitude and a hard heart. And it seems to me, funnily enough, that we have the reverse problem. In fact, we have a good heart. We want people to get saved. We want God to bring revival to our city. We genuinely love our city. Our problem is that we've got bad theology. You see, we read a story like this and think, oh, that would never happen today. When, of course, Jonah's a prophet. We read stories like Peter in Acts chapter 2, where he stands up and preaches a sermon, and 3,000 people get saved in one moment. And we think, Yes, but Peter's an apostle. That would never happen in our time. I mean, has God seen how tough the soil is in Sydney? See, our problem is not that we don't, have a, we don't have a bad attitude and a bad heart. We've got bad theology. Do you know that in the last 20 years or so in China, there have been over 80 million people who have come to faith in Jesus in a church that is underground, a church that is persecuted, in a place where it's illegal to often own a Bible and go to worship. 80 million people over 20 years. Now, I did the maths, and you can check, but not right now, because I don't want to know if I'm wrong right now, but that's 11,000 people a day over 20 years. That's not, that's not ancient history. There are no New Testament apostles walking around the streets of Beijing, right? It, this is our, our time, our generation, our moment. And God is profoundly at work, loving people, rescuing people, saving people, showing his grace and mercy. This is not ancient history. Our theology, what we believe about God, shapes our actions, how we live our faith out. And I want to suggest to you, if we have a view of God, that he is a, some like cosmic deputy principal who's angry with everyone and wants to smite them, We're not going to be all that proactive in our mission and evangelism sharing our faith, right? But if we believe that it is God's disposition to forgive and be gracious and compassionate, that motivates us to share the good news of Jesus with the world that so desperately needs to hear it. Well, Jonah here, with his great theology and terrible heart, is a recipient of God's grace, is he not? Here is Jonah who was drowning at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, rescued by God in the form of a giant fish. That's grace right there. That's mercy. Remember, God could have just let him drown. Done. I'm going to raise up another prophet. Right? I don't need you, Jonah, to do this. It's grace. And then again, we see in this narrative here that God provides this vine to grow up and provide shelter for Jonah. It's grace. Jonah is a recipient of God's mercy and grace. And yet, as he preaches this message to this city, this five-word message of judgment, we can see so clearly that Jonah doesn't understand grace. Because he's happy to receive God's grace for himself, he just doesn't want God to be gracious to anyone else, particularly anyone who falls outside of the national boundaries of the people of Israel. Jonah just wants to put a firm boundary around his people and say, God, this people and no further, thank you very much. Certainly not the Ninevites. The Assyrians are not deserving of grace. God, they're wicked. They're evil. They're brutal. They're violent. Punish them. Destroy them. Jonah, with his nationalistic agenda, is happy to receive God's grace, but not happy for God to give that grace to anyone else. And that is a demonstration that he does not get Grace because grace grace is an undeserved gift Grace is not something that you earned grace is not something that you deserve Grace is something that God gives and grace ought to destroy any sense of superiority right? there's just there's no packing orders when it comes to grace right no racial packing orders, no social packing orders, no linguistic picking orders no socioeconomic packing pe- orders. The ground at the foot of the cross is flat. We all come to Jesus on equal terms. Sinners in desperate need of grace. Some of us have a larger quota of sin for sure. And the Ninevites did. But we all come on equal terms. Grace ought to destroy superiority. And here is Jonah, the recipient of God's grace. And blind to that fact... Because he is so angry when God is gracious to someone else. And graceless people are miserable people. And Jonah is miserable. He is so miserable that he wishes that he was dead. Did you pick that up when Hannah read it? It's like, this is, this is hilarious. Verse 3, he says, take my life. Now, life would have to be pretty bad for you to arrive at the point of being suicidal, right? And to be fair, people get there, right? There are real reasons why people are despairing of their own lives. And Jonah arrives at that point of despair. Why? Because God used him as an agent of mercy and blessing to the nations. It's ridiculous. Jonah, in effect, is saying to God, I'm embarrassed and ashamed, God, that you would use me to save my enemies, Now, if you thought that Jonah had reached the pinnacle of his petty, fickle, self-righteous, sulking, you'd be wrong. Have a look at verse 5, because it gets worse. If it it could, it gets worse. Jonah chapter 4, verse 5. Jonah went out, sat down at a place east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to provide, to give him shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was what? He was very happy about the vine. He's exceedingly, he's stoked to use a 2020, I'm not even sure if that's a 2022 phrase. It's a Bill and Ted's reckless adventure phrase. He is very happy about the vine. Verse 7, but at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint and he wanted to die and said it would be better for me to die than to live and God said to Jonah do you have the right to be angry about the vine I do he said I'm angry enough to die I mean we read that and you like you kind of chuckle right it's hum- it is humorous And it's sad at the same time because it is such a stark picture of Jonah's heart, of his spiritual condition. He is happy about the vine, so happy, pleased. And then again, he is so angry, angry enough to die when God takes the vine away. I don't know if you'd want Jonah in your gospel community. As in having Jonah in your GC. That like guy, sorry, you'd be messaging your leaders every week. Sorry, God, I can't come. Sorry, I'm sick this week. Jonah just ruins every discussion. He's negative. He's critical. He hates everyone. He's judgmental. He's, you know, he's just, he has to be the most unlikable character in the Bible. Jonah, son of Amity. But you know what? I think that's the point. Chances are Jonah at least wrote or narrated this story. I mean, who else could tell us about what happened in the belly of the fish? It was just Jonah and the fish, right? And I think chapter 4 is there to expose Jonah's heart as, as this caricature and contrast it against our own hearts and our own attitudes. A number of years ago, I, I got into a new hobby. I don't know if anyone else does this. You, you get into a new hobby you spend thousands of dollars on all the your new equipment. Well, my, my hobby was photography. I decided to get into photography. Expensive habit, I know. But anyway, we bought a camera and I bought a tripod and, you know, all this gear, all these lenses, all this stuff. And there's a group of guys from my church who would head out to the beaches really early in the morning and do sunrise photography. And so we would get up at like 3.30 in the morning, drive out to the beach, get there at quarter past four, set up and stand there with cameras pointed at the horizon and try and get these photos like you'd leave your lenses open for like 35 seconds and get these really cool shots and the water would all be like creamy down the bottom and the very first time i went i had brad spencer's laughing at me he's like rookie um the first, i was a rookie the very first time i went i set up my tripod i point my camera all the way out at the horizon and then i look down and all of my friends have got their their cameras tilted down i'm like guys what are you doing? They're like, I don't know. You're like, you've got to get the rocks down here. You've got to get the rocks and the water and then the, you know, the, and then the, the horizon. It's not just all about the sky, you know. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that, this is about contrast. It's like interesting contrast. So get the brown chocolate rocks and the white and then this beautiful horizon, all the colors of the sun bursting. Oh, that was the idea. Contrast. Trying to get this idea of contrast. I came across this definition of contrast. A striking exhibition of unlikeness, It's good, isn't it? A striking exhibition of unlikeness, contrast. And I think that's what's happening here in Jonah chapter 4. I think whoever wrote this is trying to create contrast. Contrast between Jonah's heart, Jonah's attitude, and our heart and our attitude. Because you simply cannot get anything further from the heart of God Than Jonah's heart, right here in chapter 4. Have a look at what it says in verse 10. Then the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It was its grace to you, Jonah. You didn't till the ground, you didn't plant the seed, you didn't water it, you didn't tend this. It was a gift of grace. You've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprung up overnight and it died overnight, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well, should I not be concerned about that great city? You see, the vine here is an objective lesson for us, a lesson of contrast, to contrast Jonah's concerns and his delight and joy over a piece of vegetation, and his moping at God blessing hundred thousand 120,000 image bearers. Like Jonah is more concerned about a withering vine than revival breaking out in the city of New York. Like that's the equivalent, right? Revival breaks out and how many people in New York? 10 million? 10 million people give their, fall on their knees and repent and change their ways. And Jonah's concerned about a withering vine. It's hard to believe that someone could be so concerned about vegetation, so unconcerned about people. Jonah is so self-absorbed with his needs, his concerns, his comfort, his reputation. His heart is completely unaligned with the heart of God. God has concern for this city. You see what he says there? Jonah, there's, there's 120,000 people there. They don't know their right hand from their left. That, that's a way of saying their moral compass is off. They don't know right from wrong. There's cattle and sheep as well. I mean, God's concerned about them all. It's not like God turns a blind eye to their sin, right? Remember, that, that's why he sent Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 1, it literally says that their wickedness has confronted God like a wave. it slapped him in the face. It's not like he's turned a blind eye. He's minimized it. He's seen it. He knows it. That's why he has sent Jonah. But God places value on people made in his image. And really, the Assyrians are in just as much need of the grace and mercy of God as Israel was. Remember when God said to Israel, I chose you out of all of the nations of the earth. You are the apple of my eye. You're precious. And why? It's not because you were better than everyone else around you. It's because I'm a God of grace and mercy. It's because I'm abounding in love. It's because I'm compassionate. That's why I've chosen you, Israel. In the end, it's Nineveh and Israel who are both in desperate need of God's grace. You know, after Jonah, God sent another prophet to another city that was also under judgment. You'll remember his name. His name is Jesus. And he was sent on a mission to preach to a city. And as this prophet Jesus stood on a hill, not all that too far away from where Jonah himself stood and watched, Jesus stood up and in Luke 19, 41, it says, As he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, He what? He wept over it. He wept. His heart broke. In fact, he says to the city, if only you would have seen, if only you had eyes to see what was coming, what was here. If only you would have turned and recognized the time of God's coming, he weeps. See, when Jesus came to preach judgment, and, and we need to, we don't leave that bit out of the story, right? He came and he preached with tears in his eyes and a lump in his throat. He did not stand there, Westboro style, with placards saying Christian rock is from the pit of hell. Now, this prophet had a heart that was aligned with the heart of his father. Jesus wept for the city that he was sent to. He had a heart for it. And his mission just didn't cost him three days in the belly of a fish. It cost him three days in the grave. It cost him his life. Where Jonah hated his enemies, Jesus loved his enemies. And he perfectly reflects God's heart for the world. You can't get a better contrast than that, can you? The heart of Jonah, probably the most self-righteous, fickle person in the whole Bible and in the heart of Jesus, the perfect son of God. Jonah is more concerned about a plant than he is about people. And it can be so easy for us to point the finger at Jonah and go, oh, look at this guy. Can you believe the extent of his self-righteousness until we begin to realize that there's a little bit of Jonah that lives inside each of us. So what are the withering vines in your life? The things that you are more concerned about than the city of Sydney and the people of this city hearing about the grace and mercy of Jesus. What is it? Career, family, comforts, car, education, team, friends, comfort. What is it? so easy to be disgusted at Jonah until we recognize that there's a withering vine in my life. And if I'm honest with you guys, and it's embarrassing to admit in a sermon like this, right? because this, this sermon is just a mirror, right? But if, if I'm honest, I think the thing, the withering vine is in my life is what people think of me. It's my concern for my comfort. There's a story that I'm kind of embarrassed to share, but I had just become a a Christian at the end of high school, my final year of school. And uh, I'm this young, exuberant Christian, new to the faith, excited about sharing my faith. And there's a girl who sits next to me every chemistry lesson who shows an interest. And we begin to talk. And I share my faith with her. And I begin to answer her questions. And then after a few weeks, she says to me, hey, do you reckon I could come to church with you? And I'm like yeah. And in that moment, I just saw this like window into my heart because I didn't want to bring her to church. And the reason I didn't want to bring her to church was because I had this safe circle of friends at church that was comfortable and I liked them and they liked me and I didn't want to interrupt the status quo of that And then if I took her to church, I'd have to like babysit her the whole time, be like, introduce her to all these people and and man, the conviction that I still feel as I reflect back on that story because I, I never invited her. to She wanted to come. And I can be so disgusted at Jonah's attitude and forget that that same attitude lives right here in my own heart and my own life. I wonder what the withering vines in your life are. We need hearts that would align with God's for this city heart like Jesus. And so this morning what I want to encourage you to do is we transition to Lord's Supper and worship is to spend some time reflecting on God's grace. Remember the grace of God in your life and allow that grace to overflow into the people around you. To not be like Jonah who receives God's grace and then holds on to it and doesn't want to give it to someone else because Grace always comes to us on its way to someone else. I I got that quote from Jerusha. Is that right? Did I butcher that, Jerusha? Grace always comes to us on the way to someone else. Anyway, I heard you say it once. I'm I'm giving you the credit. As we wrap up the book of, of Jonah here, one last point. As we can read this story and, you know, clearly Jonah is the centerpiece of this book, right? His just comical journey of obedience to God's call and how God uses him. We get to the end of this story and you think, actually, who was the project in the book of Jonah? Like, all along, was it Nineveh? Like, was Nineveh the project in this story? Like God's, God's got this vision to save Nineveh and he's going to use whoever he wants. Is, is Nineveh the project or is Jonah the project in this story? Well, maybe it's a bit of both, actually. In fact, maybe this story is more about Jonah than it is about Nineveh. And this story, if any of the stories in the Bible remind us that God can still use broken, crooked, bent, half-hearted, self-righteous people, this is the story to remind us of that truth. That if God uses Jonah, whose heart is horribly wrong, imagine what he could do with a people whose heart is aligned with the Father's heart for this city. Imagine what God could do with a people who choose to believe that God is gracious, compassionate, abounding in love. It's a reminder, as I said to us last week, that God can still draw straight lines with crooked sticks. Because I believe that as much as God is concerned about the city of Sydney, He is concerned about you and me and our hearts. And He wants to use us. And He wants our hearts to align with His. And so this morning, there's an opportunity for us to do some heart work with God, to come back to Him, to remind ourselves of the grace that we've received to be filled up with that grace, to be sent out so that we can share it with other people. I'm going to pray to that end as the band comes up. Let's pray together, church. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you are gracious to us beyond what we deserve. You are compassionate. You are bound in love. And we may fail a thousand times, God. And there you are a thousand times to forgive us thank you for your posture and heart not only to us but to this world to this city God this morning we choose to believe that there are people in this city whom you have called they are yours and you want to use us as your instruments to bring revival to their souls Father we confess that so often we think that we are unusable our lives are such a mess, but God, would you remind us this morning that you are the God who draws straight lines with crooked sticks. You are the God who uses wayward, rebellious prophets to achieve your purposes. Help us to be that church, God. Help us to be the type of people who would be used by you as agents of blessing to the world around us. God, we pray that you would remind us of grace and fill us afresh. We ask this in Jesus' strong name. And God's people said, Amen. Bless you, church.